You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. initial speaker, uh, former U.S. ambassador to Cyprus and current adjunct faculty at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. Mr. John Koenig comes to us with over 30 years of diplomatic experience. He is a fantastic speaker, and you guys, please give a round of applause for Mr. John Koenig. Good. Great. Welcome. Welcome to uh, the uh, West Coast Model EU. I brought my own swag here. This is uh, EU presidency swag. It's kind of the elite of swag, I think. Um, and I have a speech in here and a book that I'm going to use. So it's really an honor for me to have this opportunity to come and uh, speak to you tonight and uh, greet you here at the Model EU. I sometimes feel half European myself. I've lived and worked and traveled in the United States for most of my life since 1975 when I was pretty young, much younger than you. Uh, and like so many Americans, American diplomats in particular, I have the highest regard for the European Union. True, I was more directly involved in my career in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, where I worked both at the Alliance headquarters in Brussels and in the uh, command structure in Naples, Italy. Still, I would like to consider myself living proof that an American, at least, uh, can love both NATO and the EU equally, and both just about as much as the United States, I have to say. It's a fantastic organization. In 2015, I retired from the American Foreign Service after three decades of service abroad. The last 21 years of my career were spent entirely in Europe, which is really unusual in the Foreign Service. I spent the last 18 years, from 1997 to 2015, living in the European Union. So I'm going to try to make this work. So this is a picture of me uh, in the buffer zone in Cyprus, where I was ambassador in 2014. Uh, talking to Joe Biden, uh, very happy. We were uh, on the verge of launching the latest unsuccessful series of <laughs> negotiations to find a solution to the Cyprus problem. And at the beginning, everything looked very good. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out last year. Uh, so I think there's a Cypriot delegation here from the uh, Western Washington University. Is that right? Great. Welcome. Um, I suppose you're already making yourself pretty popular on the issue of Turkey's involvement in CFSP. Uh, you know, Cyprus is a new member state, one of those that joined the Union in 2004. And when my Cypriot coasts would get all snooty and European on me, which they sometimes did when I was serving there as ambassador, I would quite obnoxiously uh, tell them that I had lived in the European Union longer than they had. Now, this was not very good diplomacy, but it actually was very personally satisfying, and for me that was very important at the time. <laughs> uh, the Cypriots are, um, are fast learners, however, and they have already learned how to produce the classic EU presidency tie, which I hope some of you will have a chance to pick up someday. Usually they're ugly. I would say this is on the less ugly side. Um, they produced this one in 2012. I hardly ever wear it. I just don't really think it's that great a tie, but it's a great souvenir. The, um, your meeting here is the Model EU, uh, but is also a model of all of the meetings that take place 
not just among Europeans, but among Americans and Europeans, which are so incredibly important to our relations with Europe across the Atlantic. You know, our Atlantic partnership with Europe is the kind of thing that honestly, and this is weird, brings tears to my eyes. Um, my wife, who's here tonight, Natalie, will tell you that um, I, I get teary-eyed in public. It's one of my main foibles. I'm almost as bad as John Boehner, if you remember him. He was the Speaker of the House. My worst moment was uh, probably at the North Atlantic Council, which is the governing body of the, of the uh, NATO in Brussels, right after the London Underground bombing in 2005. I was the acting American permanent representative at the time uh, because Nick Burns, my boss, had left. He had brought me to uh, Naples or to Brussels as a deputy perm rep. And um, it was Nick who had invoked Article 5 back in 2001 on September 12th. And uh, you know that the reaction of our uh, allies in NATO was immediate and unanimous. They supported the United States in an act of solidarity under Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. So there I was a few days after the London underground bombings. Um, and uh, I was seated at that big table in that huge conference room uh, with the microphone on so everybody could hear me and the statement of the United States with regard to solidarity with the United Kingdom and in the spirit of transatlantic solidarity in front of me. And Peter Ricketts, who was the perm rep of the United Kingdom, was seated to my right because we seat, were seated in alphabetical order. And he later went on to be the uh, national security advisor uh, in the uh, number 10 Downing Street, and he was just a great guy. And as I started to read this statement, I just started to cry. And um, that's very embarrassing when you're talking to the knack. You know, nobody cries in the knack. But um, anyway, as I was reading the statement and uh, the tears were coming down, uh, Peter Ricketts reached over and touched my hand. And, and you know, that was the kind of solidarity that we have across the Atlantic in the context of our relationship with Europe. So the bond that unites the United States and Europe is extremely personal. It depends on the commitment of officials like me, I was a diplomat, leaders and soldiers, and also of students like you. You need to commit yourselves to this relationship. As an American diplomat in Europe, I got a lot of pictures for my scrapbook. I didn't just get this great swag, I also got a lot of pictures, and I'm gonna share some of my greatest hits with you tonight. So here I am, let's see. This is me, this is a very strange situation. This is me standing uh, in, the, in a um, family photo of the NATO defense ministers from 2004. I was uh, standing in for Secretary Rumsfeld who got bored and bugged out. And um, you know, I don't know, if you know Donald Rumsfeld as well as I do, I think you might agree that this was actually an upgrading of US representation to NATO. <laughs> Here I am with a real hero of transatlantic relations. This is, uh, of course, President George Herbert Walker Bush. He visited us when we dedicated our new embassy right next to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin while I was working there as uh, charge. Here I am yucking it up for some reason with uh, Barack Obama at the Siegessäule in Berlin when he made this very, very famous campaign speech there in uh, July of 2008. And this is my favorite one of all. <laughs> This is um, me and Angela Merkel. This is my favorite picture of myself with Angela Merkel. This is after the American election, 2008, 2009. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, and people always ask me when they see this, you know, what was the joke? What was so funny? And I, I really racked my brain. I, I'm pretty sure that this was when I told her that Donald Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. 
But in reality, you know, um, the state of uh, transatlantic relations in 2018 is really not a joke. The, um, there have been challenges before. My friend and former boss, Nick Burns, I've already mentioned him, famously described the period of the Iraq invasion in 2003 as NATO's near-death experience. It really almost destroyed NATO. But never before in the post-war period have we faced such a fundamental challenge to the ties between America and Europe. I believe the situation is described best by Constanze Stelzenmüller, a brilliant German analyst of European and Atlantic uh, relations who currently works at the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC. Her latest paper, published earlier this month, is entitled, Normal is Over. Constanze wrote in this paper, the conventional wisdom in Washington and many European capitals is that despite a president who continues to defy the conventions of the office, American foreign policy, and therefore US-European relations, have largely normalized, not least because the US bureaucracy has been scrambling to guide and contain their commander in chief. But Constanza goes on, have they really? And I think the answer has got to be no. They have not become normalized. In fact, I think all of us realize that this is true, but for reasons of expediency or caution, we refuse to say so explicitly. So to her credit, Constanza does, and she highlights the dangers for Europe, which are real. I'll read a little bit more from her paper. The obsessive focus on the normality in America's relations with Europe may be obstructing a profoundly important and possibly just too big to process insight. The shift in transatlantic friction point from defense contributions or trade surpluses, which of course have a long history, to globalization as such, flips the logic of the transatlantic alliance on its head. America can partly retrench here in North America. Europe cannot. On, on the contrary, globalization is the tissue on which Europe lives. Consequently, it is Europe that now has the greater, and for it, existential interest in preserving an international order that safeguards peace and globalization. So this is a very tall task for Europe to assume at least part of the leadership role that America played over the past seven decades in protecting and advancing the international rules-based order. How are things looking on the other side of the Atlantic? Well, after five bleak and dispiriting years, there are fresh green shoots of hope, that's true. Emmanuel Macron has faced down right-wing nationalists and inertia in his own country and laid out a vision to carry Europe forward. And in Germany, the new grand coalition under Angela Merkel, for all its lack of inspiration, promises to partner with France and others on key parts of Macron's vision. Unfortunately, in several other European countries, I think you're all represented here tonight, the situation is dramatically worse. For every Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel, there is a Viktor Orban or Jaroslav Kaczynski who is undermining not only the EU and its principles, but the very values on which European integration and transatlantic cooperation rest. And then there's Brexit. Uh, what can I say? It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Uh, it will hurt all of us, Americans, Europeans, and most of all, Britons. For one of the main topics of this model EU, and that is CFSP, the departure of the UK leaves a gaping hole in strategic understanding and military capability for the European Union that closer defense and security cooperation among the remaining member states simply will not be able to close for the foreseeable future. 
So circumstances are far from ideal for the EU to recover momentum and help sustain the global order. So what to do? As a short of answer, I would like to read a passage from a wonderful book in Europe by the Dutch journalist Gert Mach. Uh, it, it's about Jean Monnet. Uh, first, I'm going to set the scene. In mid-1940, it's mid-1940, and Germany has invaded Belgium, the Netherlands, and France further north than was expected by the builders of the Maginot Line. Jean Monnet, who had pioneered transportation and logistic cooperation during the First World War between Britain and France, is once again leading a very similar effort, the Anglo-French Coordination Committee. Confronting the rapid progress of the Wehrmacht through the Ardennes and then onto the plains of northern France, Monet developed a truly revolutionary proposal which you may have heard of, the Union of France and the United Kingdom. Working tirelessly over several weeks in that early summer of 1940, Monet managed to convince Churchill and a number of leaders, including, amazingly, Charles de Gaulle. On June 14, 1940, however, Paris fell to the Germans. The wording of the joint communique finalized by Monet two days later is still breathtaking all the same today. At this fateful moment in the history of the modern world, the two governments declare that France and Great Britain shall no longer form two nations, but one single Franco-British Union. Now, General de Gaulle, of all people, you know, you have to say zut alors, I guess, about this, was chosen to present the declaration to the French Prime Minister, Reynaud, in order to obtain his signature. And here's where I'm going to read a little bit from Gert Mach's book. Uh, this, these are the events of June 16th, two days after the fall of Paris in World War II. Early that evening, de Gaulle flew with a document from London to Bordeaux, the seat of the French government at the time. Churchill and a few members of the cabinet were to make the crossing to France that night by cruiser to add their signatures. But while the British ministers were at Waterloo Station, already in the train for Southampton, the news came through that Reynaud had resigned. The French government had rejected the proposed union and the war was decided. Marshal Pétain had been appointed prime, uh, premier. It's all over, de Gaulle told Monet on the phone. There is no sense in pressing further. I'm coming back. Churchill got off the train and went home. Now this was a devastating disappointment for Jean Monnet. Years later, he described the vision behind the proposal that he had made. For us, he said, the plan was not simply an opportunist appeal or a merely formal text. It was an act which, with good luck, could have changed the course of events for the good in Europe. And this is still my opinion today. So Monet was dis disappointed. But as we know, Monet persisted. In the aftermath of France's defeat and occupation and of World War II, the most destructive in history, Jean Monnet just kept persisting. We all know the history, the coal and steel community, the European economic communities, and ultimately the European Union, the reason that you're here this weekend. It is therefore highly fitting that some of the funds for this model EU were provided under a program that carries Jean Monnet's name. So those are my two main points to you tonight, the participants to you, the participants in this model EU. Devote yourselves with passion to the cause of transatlantic understanding and of cooperation. It needs your commitment. And persist when prospects look dim as they do now, even in the face of occasional disappointment, even in the face of persistent disappointment.